rule that they have to come out with a version of all their watches with nothing on the dial. I just feel like this is part of an algorithm. Like they're like, okay guys, it's time to make one with the, the salmon color and no markers. They're gonna buy it. That we can't quite tell what type it is. What I yeah. want is an empty wheel, uh, date wheel, just nothing on it. It switches <laughs> at midnight, but it's just constantly nothing. It's just blank. Greetings and welcome to this week's Upload to Watch Weekly. We are joined by Sir Captain Biggles, uh, Ariel Adams, who appears to be wearing a pilot's jacket. Either that or it's a very strange set of pajamas. I'm not sure. Good morning, Ariel. How are you? I defend all my jacket choices. <laughs> okay, that's fair enough. Joining us from just having left the barber shop by the looks of it is Happy New Haircut, David. David, good morning. Good morning. Yes. Yes. How much did you pay for that? Not nothing, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, you know, uh, you pay your money, you get the quality of haircut. But anyway, <laughs> joining us from the Great Wall of Ripley is Mr. Ripley Sellers. Good morning, Ripley. How are you? How is your wall? I'm good. Wall is good. We are both good. Very wallish and stoics. <laughs> you appear to have been joined by a grandfather's rocking chair. Oh, I'm normally I'm normally just sitting. sitting a bit more like this. But yes, this is normally the. Uh, the throne of the wall. So uh, just getting to see you behind need a cushion. me. Yes. Do you need a cushion? Yes. Yes. So if one of our audience members would like to crochet Ripley a cushion, it will be gratefully received. And joining us fresh from the uh, arm of Victoria Beckham is our favorite watch designer from Breitling and his own brand, Berneron, Sylvan Berneron. How are you? How is Victoria? Yeah, I'm all right. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, Victoria is doing well. We are very happy and uh, looking forward to this episode, guys. Excellent. Well, you're you're also specifically here to defend. You, 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 you messaged me. You messaged me when we had our episode where we talked about the price of gold watches. And you're like, Rick, you've got it all wrong. You've got it all wrong. These gold watches, they're great value. I think that's what you said to me. I think specifically you said to me, these are the best value things ever. <laughs> I can, so I can start gonna... with a specific question. So, Sylvain. Uh, we're going to start with that. We Go. have this experience. Where there'll, there'll be two watches that appear to be relatively similar. They both have gold cases, gold bracelets, you know, finely made mechanical movements. One costs between forty dollars and $45,000. And the other costs, <laughs> well, let's say double that at $80,000. Why is the one which is $80,000, $80,000? So, uh, of course, margin... Uh has to be taken in consideration depending on the brands. My, the point I was discussing with Rick is uh, it is true. It, it was more the comparison between uh, a steel piece and, and its gold counterpart. This is really where I wanted maybe to uh, explain uh, because as you know, I'm really deeply into the process of making gold watches myself and I've been uh, murdered by suppliers, uh, but uh, I digged into it and wanted to understand why the cost was so prohibitive to make uh, precious metal pieces. Um, so, is it the time now, Rick, where I can dive a little bit into it and explain? You can you can dive so. as deep as you like, as quickly <laughs> as you want to, in the defense of big gold. Okay, so uh, <laughs> the jury's listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're not sitting in judgment at all. <laughs> We we just like to say, Sylvan, we still consider you one of our friends, despite however this conversation is about to go. So uh, we're, we're sure your gold watches will be the most competitively priced gold watches around. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know, but uh, so, so basically, you you have five steps, five steps to make a, a gold watch, uh, when you have only three to make a steel watch. So the the first step is what we call laminage. Uh, it's basically you have to order the raw material from a supplier. Uh, when you make a steel watch, you receive some sort of big rings out of steel or let's say titanium, uh, and you put it in the oven and stamp it and put it back in the oven and stamp it again to, uh, around 25 times uh, for a steel watch. You can go up to 50 times for a titanium piece. Uh, but the laminage, so so the price you pay to get the raw material, and laminage is the process in order to shape the material so that you have the most optimal uh, volume to, to start working with. Uh, this is... Uh, very accessible when you do a steel watch because they have usually three sizes, uh, small, medium, uh, large. Uh, you start from these big rings uh, and it doesn't matter if you lose a lot of material because the raw material is not very expensive to start with. Uh, when you go into precious metal, you want that ring to be as close as possible to to the final shape of the watch because you don't want to buy one kilo of gold to make a case that is 60 grams. Um, So the laminage is there for uh, custom made. You basically order the ring, the thickness, the diameter and the hole inside to the strict dimensions of what you're looking for and therefore uh, for example, Presinox or Argor, all these precious metal suppliers here in, in Switzerland, they will charge you, of course. And then, for example, for my pieces, I had to wait six months just for the laminage, just to get these goddamn rings to the dimensions that I needed because I take small quantities. So, of course, I go at the back of the line. So, uh, laminage alone is a lot more expensive uh, in precious metal, any type, whether it is gold, platinum, compared to uh, non-precious metal. Okay, then you have what is called coffitaire. So, uh, when you want to handle precious metal as a company, you have to be uh, legally registered in Switzerland uh, to have that license, so to speak. So, you need to have an account with the precious metal supplier and, and they will basically have a, a virtual number which goes up and down uh, to handle your, your, your volume of gold. Uh, that also has a cost, unfortunately, and not every company can be registered. For example, me as a, as a watchmaker, I am not registered coffeeter because my case maker is and my dial maker is. So that's an additional cost that you do not have if you make steel cases. It's, uh, I would say, an administrative process, but which is actually costly. Uh, this is dedicated to gold, uh, to precious metal pieces. Third step is what we call FMO. So it's the one thing has to be understood. Uh, a case maker or a movement maker, let's take, for example, a movement maker. These guys work every day on brass only. So that's the, the material we use to make plates and bridges and wheels. Uh, when you show up to a movement maker and say, oh, by the way, I want to make my main plate and my bridges in gold, they have to isolate a CNC machine from their rotation, clean it entirely uh, to make it yeah, back to zero. If you want to load the gold in, mill the gold, take the, 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 the wasted material back so that they can melt it back, uh, and basically, the entire time where the machine is stopped, uh, 
uh, in order to clean it and to reset it and to mill the gold, etc., is actually charged to to the uh, to the guy who makes the order because these guys have to pay back for the investments they made in the first place to acquire the machine. And if you take a CNC machine like a Chiron, for example, which is uh, famous or, or Fleury, this machine costs from 800 to 1.5 million, depending on the, the model. Uh, and they have like a camera, for example, uh, an operating time of X amount of thousands of hours that the machine needs to be paid back for in, in that window. Uh, so unfortunately, uh, and I take a concrete example, to make my bare neuron cases, when I have somebody uh, stopping the machine, cleaning it entirely, I'm paying a fee, like if he was milling cases, although he's not doing it. <laughs> and, 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 but no one else will do it otherwise, because they say, look, I paid you know, one and a half million for a machine, it has to run night and day, otherwise I'm out of my cost. So if you want to mill gold, it's not my problem, it's your problem. So when I'm going to be cleaning it, I'm going to charge you like if I was actually milling. So what you're saying is it's mostly cleaning costs and admin costs. Uh, <laughs> I have an observation <laughs> that goes with what Rick is saying. You know how you mentioned all the different steps, Sylvan? Mm -hmm. I feel like if you remove two of the steps, which I call bureaucratage and exorbitage, <laughs> you just get rid of those. And I feel like you could get this made for you know not that much more than the cost of what it would actually take to machine gold. Because well, the, the, it, it is what is what we're <laughs> seeing not the difference between someone like Sylvan who has to subcontract at all, and I can see where the additional cost is there, versus someone who's got the volume like Rolex, who've clearly got dedicated machines and are clearly, I mean, they've got their own gold mines. And, they, and, and yet, they so, also forge their own gold. Don't forget that they literally yeah. mix their own golds. Mm -hmm. So those stages that you're talking about, Sylvan, don't exist for some of the the big brands. But they're start still charging as if almost if you like they were having to sub. We need to get in the gold melting industry. I think a blog to watch weekly precious metals edition is probably called for where we can arbitrage. Who gets the nickname uh, gold member? <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've managed three that's three weeks in a row we've managed to go in those kind of directions. Oh, no, and and then, what? And and just Austin to... Powers? <laughs> <laughs> we were getting out of track and to and to finish my my my, my argument so the and then the fourth and fifth step the the fourth is obviously assembly and and thrown parts uh when you assemble a, a brass movement or a steel case if you damage a part in that process it doesn't matter that much because the raw material is not very expensive when you do assemble a gold movement or a gold case and and the watchmaker uh, happens to scratch it in the process, then the loss encountered is much higher uh, because you've lost all the money you've invested up front and same apply and the same applies to the after sale stocks that you need to hold. The value of that stock uh, is much higher and and the company has to swallow it because you you can't you know if a watch breaks, you must have off the shelf these precious metal parts uh, at your disposal in order to be able to fix them. Sylvain, cor correct me if, if I'm wrong, but I understand that it's relatively easy to sell back or otherwise recycle for the value of the, of the metal gold. So if you have gold parts, shavings, things like that, 
uh, you're not sort of stuck with just gold you don't know what to do with. Like you can turn that back into buying power for more gold, right? When, once you've finished uh, milling your cases, let's say you've made 50 cases, uh, all the wasted material in the milling process is, of course, uh, shipped back to the gold supplier. And they will basically uh, rebuild the virtual numbers that I talked about. So if, if you had, I don't know, 200 Gs of gold in that account, <clears throat> it goes down to 50 Gs when you order the material. And when you ship back the wasted materials, it will grow the number back up to 80,000, for example. This is how, how it works. Um, but uh, my main point was, Gold pieces are much more expensive, not because of the material itself, but because of the man hours involved in order to make it happen. And I can take uh, another example that everybody will understand. It, when we go and buy food, for example, if you buy a salad and a kilo of tomatoes, uh, the seeds are free, water fall, falls from the sky, and the dirt is also there and, and at everybody's disposal. So when you buy these vegetables... What you buy is the farmer's time to uh, invest in the infrastructure, to, to grow the stuff, uh, and you're not buying valuable resources as such because it's food and you will turn it into you-know-what at the end. So uh, I, I think that comparison is important because it, it goes to show that the precious metal uh, used in making a watch makes the entire process a lot longer, a lot more delicate, and this is where the extra cost comes from, from my knowledge. It's not, it is true that if you buy, a, I don't know, a day just in steel and the same in gold, the price difference is huge uh, and cannot be justified just by the price of, of the, the, the gold in the watch itself. But the, the price difference goes in the fact that it is a dedicated supply chain and manufacturing chain, which is a lot more delicate and, and, and hard to manage. So this is what I wanted to, to sort of try to highlight today for, for the collectors listening uh, to understand that making a gold watch is far from being a carbon copy process from making the same in steel, far from it. Uh, so, Silvan, just going back to the gold uh, conversation here, how much should a customer be willing to accept as the price difference between a non-expensive material like steel and gold? We understand that certain brands like Rolex have so much vertically integrated, not only the number of gold watches they make, but the ability to have control in-house. But we do see situations where gold and titanium at super high prices are exactly the same for like a several hundred thousand dollar watch, or the price uh, of gold is sometimes double. And I think that can be difficult for consumers to put some rule, some mathematical understanding of how much is okay to pay for gold uh, and and where is there actually good value, and then where where is a brand just trying to you know squeeze out a bit too much margin for gold uh, watch buying customers. Okay, so uh, first we'll have to, to split two types of pieces, the pieces where only the case is involved and the pieces where the bracelet is involved. Uh, historically, for example, uh, you probably remember this pieces, Ariel Lange, 20 years ago. Uh, Lange and Zone had some watches with these famous gold bracelets where the bracelet was almost more expensive than the watch head itself. Yeah, those were nice. <laughs> Those were nice. Yeah, but these bracelets, they cost 
easily 30, 35, 40,000 to make, only to make, because you have 200 small links in massive goals that needs to be milled and finished. And, and it's an absolute nightmare. And, and for, 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 for my project, the Mirage, I've been asked by collectors since day one if I could come up with a gold bracelet. Uh, and I actually decided not to to venture into this right now because I simply do not have the cash, and I could not afford to have forty thousand bracelets, forty thousand Swiss franc gold bracelets sitting in stock. Um, but to answer your initial question, let's say we take a normal watch on a steel case with a rubber band or or leather strap. Um, I think the, the, and, and let's say that steel watch costs around 10,000 Swiss francs. I'm just making up a number. Uh, the same, uh, piece in gold could easily cost 10,000 because you would have approximately 5,000 of raw material. Let's say almost a hundred grams of gold to be managed in that watch. And, and the costs, uh, of handling that is probably another 5,000. Uh, and it's roughly the same calculation I have on my Mirage because I've been asked, some, some collectors asked me, oh, could I have a, a steel version of that? And they were uh, disappointed to hear me saying that the, 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 it would lower the price from 55 to 45 and not from 55 to 30, for example, like some of them could expect. Uh, so that gives you some sort of a ballpark idea. Uh, I think 10,000. Uh, seems to be a good upgrade in general. It depends always of the size of the case and the thickness and everything. But that ballpark, uh, an idea of, of, of what it could be. And then if you venture into, for example, a Rolex Mariner in steel and the same in gold with the bracelet, you can easily double that number easily. Easily, because... It, yeah, it strikes me that there's a maybe an interesting lesson to be learned here. and Maybe you can answer why you had the compulsion to go make gold in the first place. Because one takeaway from this conversation is that if you're not buying from a brand like Rolex that can afford to do a gold watch in a price that makes sense in the market, for smaller brands, uh, it's just not worth the effort and they should use non-gold uh, materials and things like that, steels, titaniums, whatever, ceramics, things like that. So what is the argument for small brands to make gold when – they they have to end up charging so much more or are you dealing with customers that are so price insensitive that they want that gold anyways and they don't really care well uh, i agree that for young independents uh, using precious metal from the start uh, doesn't bring anything on the table except increasing the risk you know especially when you launch a new design what, what you want is first and foremost to have a proof of concept so to speak and once that worked, then on a later stage, five years down the line, you might want to launch the, the gold variant of that. Uh, in my case, uh, you know me by now, uh, the goal of uh, doing it all in gold, the mindset is a very artistic approach. It was like, okay, let's make a, a bent movement, which is already very risky, and let's underlining it by making it entirely in gold so if that was not enough let's just like double on, on the bet sort of uh, so in my case the goal was simply to suffer as much as possible to be honest and, and it and it happened so <laughs> i'm suffering big time so, so. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
Ripley, David, thoughts on gold watches? Uh, ever tempted by the gold version of something you already own in steel because it's gold? Yeah, I mean, for me, I w- one of the things that I, I think that I've learned is that if you're going to get the gold watch, you might as well get the gold bracelet. Because if you look at Rolex, what they charge for a gold Daytona on a rubber Oyster Flex bracelet with a black ceramic bezel. So basically the only gold bits on the watch are the hands, uh, hour markers, case crown pushers, whatever. And then you look at what the brand charges for the full gold Daytona, gold bezel, full gold link bracelet. The difference isn't that much of a difference versus that gold Oyster Flex Daytona and a steel one where you actually have a steel bracelet. So what I've learned is that if you're going to get a gold Rolex, you sh- it's your moral obligation to get the full gold version on the gold bracelet <laughs> and get as much gold as you can because you know it's – it's you know in for a penny in for a pound, but the additional markup, um, you know, it, it, that bracelet is a bargain basically, even though it costs you know ten grand or more. You know, yeah, keep, keep the pressure on Rolex's margins by buying the full gold <laughs> versus the watch. David, the pressure on the margins, I like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, friends like to tease me that I'm I almost certainly have gypsy ancestors somewhere because the more gold and the more diamonds I can have, I will take it. Um, to answer your question, I, sometimes I find myself uh, on Chrono Twenty Four just browsing for the cheapest gold watches, and it's it's fun what you can find there. Uh, most of them are basically defunct ex or current Swatch Group brands like Harry Vinston and Jacques Hedro and uh, stuff like that. You, you, you can get a really good deal on a gold watch there, uh, not on a bracelet though. But uh, you, you'd be surprised how cheap those can get. Um, so yeah, I th- I think it's um, it, you know because of these margins that we sometimes uh, see, especially from the bigger brands, that gives way to some huge or uh, considerable discounts. So you know, shop around and uh, you might be surprised. Cool, right? Let's move on a bit. So there was a wee announcement. We don't often cover this sort of thing, but David, you did a, a brief article on a Rolex watchmaking center in Dallas. Yes accepting applications for an 18th month tuition free training so anyone tempted to apply sylvan would you like a, <laughs> an internship with rolex yeah, yeah i mean as a watch collector i would love to from a contractual perspective i'm not sure if i would be allowed that but <laughs> you can well, sneak in the sad thing is it doesn't teach you watchmaking what you essentially learn is how to service Rolex watches it's more of a technician role I mean they yes they have the word watchmaking in there but you're I mean you're assembling at best and usually not from scratch and so you get a free education which allows you to have a a decent career being a Rolex service person I think you agree for a number of years to work with for them and maybe no one else Um, and then you can go off and be independent though you're not going to get Rolex parts or anything like that unless you work for Rolex and so Maybe it'll work in-house at a store somewhere. I think what's important to say is that with this, the Rolex certified pre-owned program requiring stores to service to a certain level, where are these service providers going to come from? Rolex is probably going to be the one uh, training them. So this is an initiative, in my opinion, which is designed not only to help Rolex fix more watches in the United States, but to create individuals that can go work at watch stores that sell Rolex to do the servicing for the certified pre-owned there, which happens on the spot, uh, those watches aren't necessarily sent to Rolex in Switzerland or some Rolex-owned facility. So there's a lot of reasons why Rolex is doing this. And you know, you have to pay for your rent and your food, but it's true that the tuition of the education itself um, comes without cost. Um, and I don't know a lot of programs like that. 
I'm like everywhere in Europe, you know, free education's lucky you, right? Yeah, right, not a privilege. We have the whatever the opposite (laughs) of that is. I will supplement that by by you know by some corrections there because it's kind of important. Rolex is providing eighteen hundred dollars a month um, to everyone. Oh, a stipend Uh, too. Yeah, and there's no obligation. How 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 expensive is it to live in Dallas, Texas? I mean, you're not you're not you're gonna get a roommate and maybe a couple of burgers a month for that. All right, okay. Yeah, but it's it's I I don't know what other better options you have uh, for higher it's education something. in, in America, right? right? Yeah, um, that's one thing, and the other is um, that there's no obligation to wear for Rolex for any period after yeah you, uh, you've graduated. Hard to pull that off in America. I noticed that it said <laughs> that they offered placement after completion to their um, service provider network. And before I wrote about watches, I used to work on the service side of the industry, and because of the way it works, it was like ninety percent Rolex what we did. And um, those parts accounts is a hard thing. It's not like Rolex doesn't sell parts to independent watchmakers, but to have a purchasing account with them, it's very difficult. They've shut a lot down in the United States, and they really don't want um, the individuals on an individual level servicing for other companies. They really want it to be like an individual with his shop servicing watches for the little community. So once you start servicing for other pre-owned dealers, whatever, they pull your account. If they don't like how you're running your repair shop, they pull your account. Um, But what they're left with now is uh, a a lot of watches over a million a year that they're producing. And eventually these all will need some type of intervention. And they've now taken the parts accounts away from a lot of people who are able to service them. And now with the CPO program, they find themselves in a position where they are obligated to make these watches run within specs again before they can sell them. And this is left up up to the retailers. These aren't going back to Rolex Service Center at Dallas, Beverly Hills, or New York City, or Geneva to get serviced. These are being done at their authorized providers. So to me, this seems like a, a natural stopgap for Rolex to supply watchmakers to the greater Americas um, that they're, I mean, they kind of already do this with Lidditz as far as, you know, furthering the education and building the next generation of watchmakers. But this seems like a solution to the problem where they're now going to be producing more watchmakers to then service their watches for these, you know, retailers that are now doing the CPO program. So it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I even thought about applying to Lidditz for a while, but um, after working on the service side of the industry, I realized I really did not want to be a watchmaker myself. But um, for anyone who's thinking about doing it, I think it would be an awesome opportunity. And it's not like you're, you know, I'd rather be in Dallas than Lidditz, if I'm being honest. (laughs) Uh, Good stuff. Well, I'd be interested to know if anyone... If anybody applies, so if you happen to be listening to this and you decide to apply, I'd be interested to follow follow that journey and, and see how it goes. Right, well, we've spent all this time, we've yet to review a watch, so I'm going to reverse the order I was going to do this just because of our previous conversation. So let's talk about a watch that Ripley reviewed, the Bulgari Octofinitable watches in steel and in yellow gold. The steel is... A fourteen no thirteen hundred thirteen thousand five hundred dollars, and the gold is forty five and a half thousand dollars. It does appear to be a gold bracelet, so it ticks that box. Ripley, what did you think of the watch? Uh, so these are a bit interesting. I almost had to do a double take. Uh, the gold one, it seems like, I, I, I say this in the article, It's a, the Octofinesium is a relatively new collection. So there's certain ex- watches and configurations that seem like they already should have existed that are just now kind of coming out through the woodwork, like a gold watch on a with a blue dial. That's like so common. But 
it didn't exist. So now here we have one. Um, the other one is interesting to me because this literally, this watch actually did exist. It was a limited edition before for the US market. Um, and I guess it was popular. So they've made a standard production model. Um, but it, maybe there's a difference between Tuscan copper and metallic salmon. I'm not, I'm not an authority on the Pantone palette, but, um, I, I that's the, what I, I think the bronze one is an interesting one. Cause I'd love to see the two watches side by side and see if there actually is a difference between these two, or if it's like what many other brands have done where a, a limited market exclusive got popular and then they opened it up to the greater audience. Sylvan, as a watch designer, you must have some degree of appreciation for the uniqueness uh, of of the Octofinissimo. Does it is it particularly attractive? Are you jealous of, you know, oh, I wish I'd designed that? Is it that sort of feeling you get from something that's as unique as this? So uh, actually, Fabrizio is a neighbor of mine. We live in the same village in in, in Neuchatel, as as of David knows. You do. Uh, I have. <laughs> I, I think he's been instrumental in 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 bringing Bulgari back uh, to the status it currently has in the in the industry. Um, as a designer, I have uh, tremendous admiration for the work he's been putting together because he had not only a lot of talent but a lot of stamina as well. It's not easy to be exciting for a decade every year. That is very hard to achieve. It's easy to have one sparkling idea, uh, but but to be consistent like this is is truly admirable, uh, in my opinion. Uh, and, and the watch itself, uh, at the moment, I am jealous because I like the watch very much. It just it is far too big for my wrist. Unfortunately, I have a very tiny six point two inch wrist, uh, and I hope they will. Um, make the the octofinissimo evolve into a smaller size in the future so so it would be i think that could actually unlock quite a big potential for this collection uh, in terms of spreading it to a wider audience uh, ariel david has the heat gone out of this design a bit i feel like it was right front and center for maybe the last few years as being like yeah this is really something unique is it getting slightly oversaturated now with the number of different varieties? Does it need a break? Does it need to kind of have a rest with all the variety that's there to then come back? It's or a, is it's it just a good point. because it wears so? Or it doesn't wear awkwardly, but it's one of these watches. It either fits you or it doesn't. Whereas most watches, you can kind of, you know, justify that they all fit in the way. But this is very much it suits you or it doesn't. And so I wonder if it's kind of reaching its nadir in terms of everyone that wants one's got one. Well, I think the most important thing about the Octo Finissimo, it was finally a men's Bulgari watch that enthusiasts could really rally behind. Like a lot of enthusiasts had been okay with the brand for a while, but there wasn't like a specific model. They were like, yes, this is the one. Um, and in a sense, it was sort of like, the Nautilus or the Royal Oak or something like that, where people could rally behind something. And, and a lot of different people from different sort of parts of appreciation could agree. You know, you had the thin movement people, you had uh, the sort of fashionable people, you had the Gerald Genta people. Um, you had a lot of different types of collectors that could sort of rally behind this. Um, 
Bogary has not changed it this year, which is okay. And I think maybe that's what we're saying is like, oh, there's no new complications, this and that. They were keeping expectations high for, you know, basically a, a decade, uh, consistently like pushing the envelope. And now it's, you know, it's going to have to be supported by them. So I think the question is for this to become a uh, a truly effective part of Bulgari's core collection, what are they going to do from a marketing perspective? You know, what's the personality going to be in the ads um, to, to make this a mainstream thing? That's the time. Now that enthusiasts love this, it's ready for the mainstream to be into this. As we've pointed out in the conversation, the, the, the Finissimo, uh, the Octo Finissimo is not for all wrists. The Roma uh, is a is a smaller wearing watch for people that feel that the finissimo is too big. So um, it's definitely not for everyone. Um, it's it's a cool thing. Does everybody need to own one to have a complete watch collection? No. Uh, but we're seeing this sort of normalization of a of a fresh icon um, from Bulgari. Um, but I think Fabrizio knows that you can't stop there, and he's got a bunch of things in his mind. Um, He'd love for the sport watch to become a thing at Bulgari again. Uh, that's been a very difficult thing for them uh, to sort of get off the ground as sort of a new sport watch collection. Um, so uh, I, I think they're quite aware that there's there's a lot uh, more to go. Um, but yeah, I don't think we're going to see you know year after year of, of Octo Finissimo innovation for a while. David, some quick thoughts. Uh, yeah, I think um, Silva was spot on, and as you were, Rick, about making this a smaller version um, at some point, I think that would um, revitalize uh, this collection a little bit. I don't think it's been overdone in the sense that it's still kind of fresh, and I don't think people are pulling the trigger on a purchase like this uh, quite so quickly. So I think, you know, customers have to be given some time, you know, at least a couple of years for them to decide which one they want and try it on and so on and so forth. But I also agree that it's a very specific style that either looks on you, um, looks good on you, or it doesn't. And maybe making it smaller somehow uh, would uh, um, freshen those things up and mix it up. But I'm sure that will be very, very uh, costly and time-consuming to do. Mm. Okay, I, a brand that uh, I don't know whether this is fresh from them uh, now that they're owned by somebody different. But uh, the sporty Carl F. Bucherer Monero Central Counter Chronograph watches, that's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, gentlemen, what do we think? Is this reflective of anything Rolex as yet? Or are we still bringing out the stuff that was designed long before that surprise takeover of oh it's not this is not new <laughs> this does not have any rolex language on it let's put it that way um there's no rolex involvement as as of yet i uh, it's a it's a weird time right now for carla bucherer i mean i think everyone on this call and, and it's like eight people now i think we all have like several <laughs> good things to say about the brand maybe some things we don't like about it um but right now is got to be a weird spot. Like it's not, Carla Booger is not in trouble. I mean, they're owned by Rolex. You can never be in trouble being owned by a very, very rich parent. Um, that's not going to let you embarrassingly, you know, dissolve. Um, but what they do, who they compete with, what price point they're at. The last time I chatted with them, they wanted to go up market and be like a twenty, thirty thousand dollars watch. Um, so this, this would be considered like an entry level Carla Bucherer. Um, you know, it has that central seconds uh, chronograph, which is cool for the eight people on the planet that really want one. I, I like those. I got a watch that has that. 
but I've never been <laughs> like, oh, wow, that really just turns me on to watch. It gives it a slight differentiation for um, all the other chronographs out there. Um, but style-wise, this and that, I mean, it doesn't really bring anything new to the table. Maybe maybe David has some thoughts. Uh, yeah, I think uh, it's fresh in the sense that, you know, we don't often see center counter chronographs. I'm not sure I would have added the, the night day night indicator that reminds me of uh, relatively cheap Chinese watches. Uh, you know, it's just such a cheesy complication in a way. Um, it's very easy to do, not very handy. Okay, hand- the window. Uh, yeah, and yeah, yeah, put it in a window. Yeah, I mean, if it's like a little window that's either white or black, as it is on like some Jagers and stuff, I think that's that's kind of classy. But to have like a, a large subdial at nine o'clock for this is is a, is a little bit weird. I'm not sure what the straps are like. They they appear to be this rubbery thing with all these lines on them. Uh, Ariel, what, what's this strap about? <laughs> yeah, this is a this is a strange one. This is, I believe, is this a textured rubber strap? Yeah, this mm. is a textured rubber strap. I mean, I'm just happy when it's not a plain black rubber strap, which I think is actually the most boring thing in the watch industry today. I mean, like, if it's not like a military watch and something comes on a black rubber strap, I'm kind of upset. Like, give it a little bit of texture or something like that. Like, like they are trying here to make this <laughs> rage against the Next machine. Turn. Yeah, they are trying to make this a more expensive product. This is, you know, close to eighty five hundred dollars. But I, I just it's just not pretty enough. It's just it's not original enough. Um, it's it's a perfectly competent watch, but it it I don't know. It lacks it lacks the personality I need to see from my Bucherer. <laughs> Anybody else want to see some personality from the Bucherer, Sylvan Ripley? I mean, I yeah, I'd like to see more personality. It'll be interesting to see where the brand goes. But like, I think David kind of hit it spot on. I, they've kind of undone the purpose of doing the whole center center count uh, center counter chrono thing by having this other subdial dedicated for the day and night. It now just looks like a two register chronograph. And yeah, sure, it displays the time differently. But I think if you were going to make this, you know different and a bit more refined and elegant approach to the chronograph really lean in it do it don't just add a second sub dial for what you could deduce by looking out the window uh, of your home or looking up at the sky and you know i think that it's kind of falls into this strange territory but it's not a bad looking watch i like the concept of the movement but i think they could have done without both of the sub dials and been just as well off Mm. Yeah. Cool. Right. Well, we're going to try and review one more watch before we head into Hitmas maybe this week. Uh, and that is going to be the H. Moser and C. Streamliner Perpetual Calendar Concept Smoke Salmon Watch. So another watch that has something to do with salmon. I don't know why everybody's obsessed with salmon. It, it always strikes me with smoked salmon watches that no one that designs them has ever actually seen the colour of a smoked salmon. I live in Scotland. We're like the world's second largest producer, I think, after Norway of smoked salmon none of the watches that's not what smoked salmon looks like so and like they won't refer to it to the things it does look like such as copper (laughs) yes copper it's just a copper watch smoked copper what do we think i'm a big fan of the the uh streamliner i'm a big fan of moser's iteration of the it's like they have a rule that they have to come out with a version of all their watches with nothing on the dial yeah but it's not a bad thing i just feel like this is part of an algorithm like they're like okay guys it's time to make one with the the salmon color no markers they're gonna buy it like i just i I don't feel tell what time it is what i want is an empty wheel uh date wheel just nothing on it 
It switches at midnight, but it's just constantly nothing. It's just blank. It's just black. I like that. Is How that will you va- know it's different? Vanta black. Make like make like little speckles on it. You just you need to know that you're seeing something slightly different. You know, <laughs> dirt on the di- dirt on the disc or something. You know, just put the emojis on it like Rolex. That's or, right. Or, those are emojis. Uh, a, a little picture of of Ed with the thumbs up. You know, it's the second. It's the fourth. <laughs> I think a, a, a we start to get a lot of little fingers on there. <laughs> yes, he's going to run out of them quite soon. But there we go. Uh, Ripley, what do you think of this? You wrote the article. Yeah. Did you handle this or was this? No, I didn't get to see this one. Um, I mean, they've done a perpetual calendar minimalist version of the time only watch that they had before. And if I'm not mistaken, because I feel like I also wrote the article on the time, the first smoked salmon one they did, I think that they somewhere justified the, um, the color of it. Uh, so, okay, yeah, here we go. Additionally, for those who may take issue with Moser calling this color salmon due to its slightly darker appearance, H. Moser and CEO uh, Edward Malin, who is also a seasoned fly fisher, uh, which they made sure to include in the first press release for the model, um, has a slightly hilarious way of explaining this. There is salmon, and then there is salmon. Our inspiration does not come from the traditional Atlantic salmon, or Samo Solar, to give it its Latin name, but it is from its very rare cousin, the Oh God, I'm not going to get that one in Latin. Uh, allowed to mature in total freedom and mas- and massaged each day by specialists using oil infused with aromatic herbs picked from the slope of the Himalayas. This species only eats crustaceans that have been pre-digested by pink flamingos. Each individual fish is smoked using a secret recipe using Scottish whiskey. There you go, Rick. And this is what gives the flesh its exceptional color. And this is the inspiration behind our new dial. So there That's you just go. That's not called Those- salmon. <laughs> do, do, do you think that like when when moser was a small company that nobody really knew uh, that and ed's humor from being brought up on monty python was like yeah we all get it but there's now a a a purchaser of moser that now just don't understand that ed is joking most of the time when he says this stuff that is like yeah no, we'll take this seriously that the joke is now passing by the russian oligarch that is now i'm sure uh, there's a collector's dinner stuff. where they can quote this by word <laughs> we are the knights of knee will you cook that anyway, dish yeah. for us edward <laughs> <laughs> mm. I'll bring the salmon. I guarantee you, you're gonna look well, that color. I don't care much maybe maybe that can be uh, drinking the stuff. Maybe that can be the next experience thing. They can package the watch with go fly fishing with Edward, and then you can go smoke the salmon after drink Scottish whiskey. There you go the, the, with real yeah. smell included. Mm. The Moser Panerai <laughs> collaboration. Everyone's waiting. The for. ruined salmon <laughs> dial. Hi, this is Ariel Adams, founder of a blog to watch, with a message about eBay. I visit eBay daily and have been relying on eBay to learn about and acquire watches for more than 20 years. Did you know that you can now buy watches directly from brands or their authorized dealers on eBay? Timepieces coveted by watch enthusiasts from brands like Zodiac, Loco, Parallel, and more are part of eBay's Certified by Brand program. Here's how it works. Luxury names are partnering with eBay to bring brand new and pre-owned watches and other luxury accessories directly to you. 
Certified by brand includes a minimum one-year factory warranty for watches and offers an unprecedented selection of new and used watches directly from the source, all with the peace of mind you can expect from eBay. Visit ebay.com slash certified by brand for more information. Right. Well, we're now going to play Hit Miss Maybe. So for those of you that are listening in the podcast, you're going to get to hear two out of the four watches that we're going to speak about. We are going to be speaking about the new release from Fears, a new uh, iteration from Christopher Ward, something new from Brement, and we're going to be going back in history for some classic hit miss maybe with the Omega, and I can never pronounce this properly, the Omega Plo Prof. There we go. If I say it slowly enough, it's successful. So we will welcome into the room everyone that is taking part. So we have uh, a few people this morning. Let me get them all unmuted. And we will start with uh, some that have already been here, because I know he is actually, well, he has told us he's got a watch. Whether he's wearing it, I don't know. David, where are you and what are you wearing? Uh, I'm in Budapest and I have it next to me. You, you see, I can't, I can't make myself wear a watch while I'm at home. I just, I took it <laughs> off. I didn't even think of it. I just somehow took it off. But this is the new, new-ish Chronomaster Sport, um, the Daytona-esque Zenit, available these days um, for those mm-hmm. who are on an infinitely long waiting list for one of those Daytonas. Article Good coming stuff. up, um, comparing it. To the actual Daytona, which is just like, <laughs> look, I can't get go. over let's, it. Let's, I honestly can't get over how yeah. similar these are. But uh, well, we'll see what we make of it. Cool, good stuff. Ariel, where are you and what are you wearing? The 50th anniversary Casiotron, Casiotron TRN oh, 50-2A. Um, I like this watch a lot more than I thought. It's you know not a G-Shock, so it's pretty small. It's about 39 millimeters wide. Um, but what I love about it is, is, you know, in the 70s when they came out with these uh, early digital watches, uh, they were really excited. So they tried to make them as fancy as like high end, like, you know, audio equipment and things like that, where it's just like all like, you know, straight angles and polished surfaces and stuff like that. So it was supposed to like feel really futuristic, like you were wearing it while hanging out with the HAL 9000. Right. So um, I just love this thing. The fact that it's got the solar and the Bluetooth on there uh, just make it like so much more interesting than like the $30 Casio vintage ones that like they're just pretty basic. So um, been enjoying this. Great stuff. I limited to 4,000 pieces. First, first, first attempt at Hit Miss Maybe, been on the show before. Pete, Pete McConville. How are you, Pete? Where are you and what are you wearing? Uh, I am coming from. Sunny Melbourne, Australia. It's a crisp uh, 37 degrees fa- uh, Celsius outside right now. Um, so hiding inside with my... And last appearance <laughs> on the show. Goodbye, Pete. <laughs> hiding in my air-conditioned room upstairs Ooh. and wearing, take it off so you can see it, a green JLC Polaris uh, dive. Very nice, very nice indeed. Now to my bottom left, Alon, second week on the show. Where are you today, sir, and what are you wearing? Good morning, chaps. I'm calling in from Amsterdam. Good to see you all. But one pretty face we don't see, but a big surprise. Yeah, see nice to see you. Good to see you, buddy. I'm actually wearing... <laughs> good to see... Well, good to see your name. Yes. But uh, next time I want to see a pretty face. Um, or your watch. Um, I'm wearing the 
Elka Diversity in the Chinese version that I had the honor to co-design with Hakim El Kadiri. I'm still in the Lunar New Year vibes. So uh rocking Lunar in New here. Year. Very Thank good, very good. The picture. And David, if I may quickly, I'm very looking forward to your article. I rock the same <laughs> white tricolore zenith. I had the titanium in my hands last week. I'm a huge titanium buff. I'm thinking of uh, trading up. So mm. very curious to read your article. Thank you. I hope I will deliver. <laughs> Great stuff. Uh, will, good morning. Where are you? What are you wearing? Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, I'm uh, coming to you from uh, Kent uh, in the UK. Um, it's a uh, it's a it's a sunny day here today, but it's only five degrees, and I'm wearing the uh, Casio uh, DW5600 uh, limited to as many as they could possibly make. Um, I was reminded <laughs> yesterday when wearing it uh, how lovely it is that when you actually bash it and knock it against things, your heart doesn't sink, um, and you uh, and you're <laughs> you're not fearful of how much that's going to cost you. Um, so yeah, so that's my Casio for today. Good stuff. Sylvan, you've been recording with us earlier on for those that are just watching on YouTube. Uh, where are you? And you're going to have to tell us because you, you you still refuse to, you know, grace us with your darling good looks by using a video camera. The pressure camera. is getting higher and higher. I, as a matter of fact, I do not have a camera on my screen because I use the screen to draw. <laughs> that's why. But uh, now I think I will have to invest into a camera because I get shouted at every second week. So I will invest in the future. Uh, and I'm currently <laughs> wearing a medium-sized vessel that I had the privilege to take from my wife. It was my watch in the beginning. She stole it from me uh, for four or five years. And today she somehow agreed to let me wear my, my initial watch. So I enjoy the vessel for a short moment of time. <laughs> if you were wearing a 47-millimeter yes, yes, wide yes, watch, true, you wouldn't have, have that have problem. I should have a bigger wrist to start with. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think... It, it, and it's good, and it's good that I wear that watch once in a while because at least it gets winded. She she shocked me the other day. She goes to work with a reverse, so she's it's not even winded. And I'm like, why the hell do you wear a watch? She like, it looks great. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I so what I'll do, Sylvana, is I'll clip this short section. I'll send it to your wife, and then very quickly the watch will be yours permanently <laughs> as part of the divorce settlement that will probably. Uh, follow anyway uh, Ripley where are you and what are you wearing in Los Angeles in my cave uh, I was wearing something that comes out on Friday which can't talk about so I put on the Garmin uh, which one is this one? Oh god Vivio <laughs> it's a Garmin it's the Vivio Va Active venue? 5 we, no the Vivio, Vivio Active 5 it's like a, a light version of the venue but has nearly the same functionality it's actually I, I think a, a great deal for anyone who wants an Apple Watch, but wants a longer battery life and not something as invasive as far as like how it pushes notifications. Um, I use it as an alarm clock, so it's a pretty solid option. Great stuff. Good stuff. And I'm wearing a Panerai and I'm in Scotland, so nothing new there. Now, I'm, I'm tempted. I've been trying to decide which order it is. Leslie is also floating around here somewhere, but he appears to be having some connection problems. So uh, we might be joined by our, our Irish uh, contingent shortly, just in time. I, I, I did want to have a pre-planned like Flower of Scotland 
thing going there for you, Will, but I decided to leave them myself and Leslie had a plan, but uh, we, we stopped that. Anyway, enough about rugby. I the I was tempted to go with the Bremen or the Fears because I think both are going to get reactions. So I think we'll try and, and encourage folk to go to the YouTube channel by doing the Bremen for YouTube. So we will start with the Fears. So here we go. The surprisingly sporty or is it, uh, Fears Redcliffe, 39.5 millimeter watch. You can see it there on your screen. You've probably read the coverage on a blog to watch, but do you think that this particular reinvention of the Fears Redcliffe, a watch that was originally quartz, but has now returned as a full mechanical watch for 3,600 USD, is a hit, a miss, or a maybe? So on the count of three, hit, miss, or maybe. One, two, three, go. We have miss, maybes, hit. Sylvan, you need to shout it out. Yeah, for me, it's a maybe as well. It's a maybe. So there we go. Right, let's start then. David, how did you vote and why did you vote? Yeah, I would have to see these hands on. Um, of the pictures, I mean, they're nice pictures, but uh, I'm not sure why these are 3300. I see it has a La Jupere, but it's a solid case back. Um, looks a bit too fashiony uh, to my eyes in terms of all kinds of proportions and details and stuff. So I'm just not sure why this is 3300 uh, as it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ariel. You know, I think that this is a perfectly handsome timepiece. Uh, the problem is, is it looks very parts bin. I mean, that bracelet, we first saw it on what, like Tag Heuer and later a whole lot of Grand Seiko. Um, you know, the dial isn't really doing itself too much favorites with originality. So if you want a well-designed watch that's super generic and nice, this is great. But then we're, you know, we've got that price that we're talking about. And frankly, you can see better watches with these parts that cost a lot less. So I really admire a lot of what Fears is doing, um, but I worry that they're quickly getting overly ambitious in terms of what they're charging because I don't see a lot of originality here. I don't see any special parts. I don't see any special design um, uh, unless I've, you know, I mean, look, the the, the G100 movement, you can easily buy in watches uh, that cost under $1,000. So uh, when I when I saw this watch, I was thinking like that's a cool six seven hundred dollar watch, and then I was kind of shocked by the price. So like someone just handed me one, I wouldn't be like I'm not going to wear this, but I I don't really see much of a value proposition given all the competition. Yeah, Pete, how did you vote? And do you see a value proposition here? I went maybe. Um, I don't really think too much about value, but I, from my point of view, I'm just it's, Ariel summed it up perfectly. It's a a perfectly handsome watch that. I don't know I'd ever actually reach into my watch box to wear. It's just, it, it lacks all the charm and all the individuality that I expect from Fears. Um, it could come from any one of a number of companies. So mm. it's perfectly pleasant, but um, can't call it a hit, can't call it a miss. It's a maybe. Alan? I have uh, voted hit, but with a disclaimer. When this <laughs> dropped on Friday... I saw the email from Gabe and Asher, Collective Horology. I fell head over in heels in love with theirs. And it's listed in this article, right? When you scroll down, you'll see a full Onyx one. And it's a total different watch. That watch is a straight hit. 
But looking at the regular ones, which I only saw the day after. So when they dropped, I thought it was a new watch, just a, a collab between Collective Horology and Fears. I dropped an email to Ashley, Gabe, and Nicholas, congratulated them. I said, stunning. Well done, chaps. But the regular one, for me, is a miss because it's a total different watch. Have a quick look. The dial is totally different. Uh, Collective Horology pulled it all out. There is no minute track, right? There are no minute numbers on the dial. No date, which I think does well. The regular piece, the dial reminisces me of a Oyster Perpetual. The bracelet, as Ariel said, could be a Seiko. The watch with the metal bracelet reminds me a bit of a Master by Longines. So, yeah, I do want to end it on a positive note. I love the hands, though, and those look proprietary and their own. So that, those are my two cents. Good stuff, Will. Um, I voted it a hit, uh, but in my trademark flip-flopping, um, I <laughs> I actually meant I, – I did genuinely mean to put this as a maybe um, because <laughs> – so uh, no. um, I'm going to say I'm going to be kind and say maybe because I really like the collective horology um, version, but I think mm -hmm. the crown is is too big. Um, I think it looks a bit too generic. I really like fears and I like their traditional cushion shape case. Um, and following what Nicholas has done with the company, particularly throughout uh, COVID and, and the lockdown, was um, was brilliant. And they've got a lot of very dedicated fans, and the company has grown, which is amazing. Um, but for me, it's probably just looks a little bit too generic. Um, and as you say, the price is a little bit high, but probably not unexpected from from fears that tends to be a little bit. You pay a little bit more for something that's a little bit different to the mainstream brands. Yeah, I think that's my issue with it. Why I put it as a miss is that it's not what you expect from fears. It's much more generic than the usual stuff. And while the you can normally justify the price point because you're getting something unique or not unique something with you know, with obvious personality that has some sort of fears recognition you could put quite a number of brand names on this and charge quite a lot less and be none the wiser so that's why i voted it a miss sylvan what do you think of this I voted a maybe for the same reason you've all put it together. Uh, could be a hit because I'm sure the, the watch is well constructed, but it could also be a miss because I fully agree. I think they have in their portfolio much stronger proposals in terms of brand recognition and, and unicity. So I went straight in the middle and went for a maybe. Mm -hmm. Okay, Ripley? Uh, I said it's a hit, and as others have said, not all of these are my cup of tea. I really like the Collective Horology one. Uh, the, the price point is ambitious. Uh, Fears does deliver a good product, and with the Collective Horology one, when you think about the Onyx dial, it's a little bit easier to justify a premium price point. Um, Again, not all of them are my cup of tea. This isn't my favorite Fears watch. That would be the platinum one, but that that's a totally different creation. Um, but why I said it's a hit is, aside from the fact that I like one variation from it, I am always seem to enjoy Fears watches more in person than I do when I just see a photo of them. The number of times I've seen one of their watches said, 
yeah, it seems fine, whatever. Then I saw it in person and was pleasantly surprised by it. And that seems to happen at 80% of the time I've seen any of their watches uh, and then seen one thereafter in person. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say the photos might be a bit uninspiring. It might not be their most unique model. Obviously, the collective horology one's a real standout and very different than the others. But I imagine that these are going to be better in person than they look in photos and also very well executed because you know nicholas does make sure that it everything that they release is very well done so i'm going to go out and say these are a hit maybe if, if they're not just for me other than the collective horology one that they're probably going to be surprisingly good in person so let's move on then to very quickly a review of something that is has been made in a different size and that is the Christopher Ward C63 Sealander GMT 36mm. 36mm GMT watch, I'm not sure that that's a particularly large market segment. The question is, should it be a larger market segment? So a hit, a miss, or a maybe. One, two, three, go. Maybes, maybe. Oh, maybe's all got a wee miss. Seems to be maybe inspired. Yeah, it's one of those days. It's just about an all round maybe. So let's start. David, why is it a maybe? Uh, it's just proportions, really. Um, nothing crazy. Um, it's. I, I just think it could be a little bit more refined. I, I, I like the crispness of the dial. I think it's legible. It's functional. It's just the lugs are a little bit too wide. It's just a a little clunky. Um, that's all. Hmm. Ariel? I think for the target demographic, this isn't bad. If you really want a smaller proportion watch that doesn't have the design of a boy's watch or a woman's watch, uh, and that is a sporty GMT, this does a good job. This overall family of watches, especially on the larger side, I think is quite handsome. Uh, it's pretty well priced. And so while I, the reason I said maybe is it's not for me. It's too small for me and... I'm just not interested in this particular type of thing. I got plenty of GMT watches. It does nothing unique for me. Uh, but this is an underserved market, and they could have made this a, a, a lot uglier. Uh, and the price point with that um, Salida-based movement um, is is totally fine. So is it the last GMT you'll ever need to own? No. But for a lot of people that want a watch of this design in this price segment, in this size, there's really not that much else out there. And this, you know, You could go way worse. So that's yeah. It, yeah. I mean, I would normally give it anything under forty-two millimeters, uh, maybe or a miss. Probably, <laughs> it's not a real watch, but this is such a good uh, watch in the bigger size that actually it only slips to a maybe for me when it's produced in the smaller size, and it's like a thousand dollars for quite a lot of watch, even though it's only thirty-six mil. Uh, so yeah and maybe for me certainly something you know if you compare it is a bit of a british week this week because we're going to have bremen shortly so maybe the comparing contrasting between fears bremen and christopher ward uh, as the british usurpers for the swiss watch industry is maybe something to behold but pete you gave it a very definitive miss uh yeah for me i Normally, actively avoid you know the comparison of it looks too much like you know insert your favorite Rolex here, but with this one I can't see this and not think Rolex Explorer, um, and for me that just makes it a miss. I, I I don't like the idea of I ever look at one watch and think of another, and 
I just can't avoid that comparison with this one. Fair comment. Uh, Alon, what do you think? I voted maybe. <laughs> I think they did well by making a 36 next to their 39. I would maybe buy one of the two if I wasn't wearing my actual Explorer <laughs> 2 Polar in 42 millimeters. As I said last week, there sometimes you can't or don't want to wear your Rolex, but you want that vibe. So that's why it's a maybe, but but it's a lot of bang for your buck. Mm. Will, is your buck going to be banged on this? <laughs> it should remain unbanged. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I put a maybe on, on this one. Um, there's lots of stuff to like, but I, I think it does. I agree. It does remind me a little bit too much of the, uh, the Ro- the Rolex. Um, I mean, that's, but yeah, it's probably a, a good or a bad thing. Um, I, I prefer it in a, uh, cause I think it's polished steel. I prefer it a bit more of a brushed steel, but that's probably cause it's reminding me too much of the Explorer that I want it to be a little bit more rugged, but I can see with the smaller bezel, um, it's a little bit more it's a little bit more dressy i don't know it didn't really fall into either camp for me i wanted it to either be a rugged explorer or something a bit more dressy because that beautiful big dial with the with the white face and everything looks really really good um i don't really have an issue with 36 um because i'm quite happy to wear a 36 mil so um but that for, for me it was a maybe it's a little a little bit too much of um nothing of one thing or the other i think for me Sylvan, would you be more inclined to wear this than the Fears? Um, no, for me, this one is a miss. Uh, I fully agree uh, on the resemblance on the Explorer, and, and that brings an interesting question. I think, uh, I don't think any of us in, in this luxury, you know, acquiring a cool watch adventure is in the game of being a glorious second. You know, like... The, yeah, this, and I see it a lot these days, companies trying to capture an icon and, and divide the price by 10 and offering it like this. I understand the, the strategy behind, but I think especially this watch, now that we talk about, uh, if it had been a bit more tweaked design-wise, could have been a friendly baby explorer. And all of a sudden, it's okay. But when you go too close to it, I think it kills the, the sexiness of, you know, because the, the message you send outside is pretty much, oh, I wanted the real one but could not get it. So that's what I ended up with. Uh, when if you take the reference, tweak it far enough, and it's a fine line because, for example, I do not have that feeling uh, with the Christopher Ward 12, for example. I think this ha- this had been tweaked enough, so so that it is a baby Royal Oak or a baby uh, Antarctic or something, uh, and, and there I'm fine because I understand that not anybody wants to spend twenty Gs on a Royal Oak or something. Uh, but here, in my opinion, it didn't go far enough, and, and it's like fake borderline territory, mm. in my opinion. But- Fair enough, Ripley. Yeah, as others have said, um, this watch suffers from what I like to call Steinhardt syndrome. It's a decent watch, well put together, solid value for the money. No complaints there. But why did you just make an homage? You could have made a regular watch with your own design. And I'd be saying, I've got little wrists. I'm on board for a 36 millimeter GMT. But instead, I'm saying you made a you made an Explorer 2 homage. And that's so unfortunate. Uh, Chris Ward makes good watches. I think 
this size and this form factor with the fixed bezel works very well, but why it's you know why they couldn't just make this be its own thing is really frustrating and even when you look at the other dial colors granted this is probably the most explorer looking one of the bunch but even when you look at the other colors there's enough design codes or even the shape of the hand or why make the hand orange you know what i mean it's just like these little things where if you had just gone a couple other directions uh like sylvan said it could be this own thing that could sit next to it rather than being this you know, one tenth of the price of, but is so clearly trying to ape this other thing. But that said, it's probably very well put together. So it's a maybe, but like it bothers me that they just went so close to the Rolex on this design. Fair enough. Well, if you're listening on the podcast and you want to hear what our uh, team are going to say about the Bremont Times Bamford or Rural Limited Edition watch and about the Omega Poprof as a generic uh, historical classic hitmas maybe then you need to head over to the youtube channel a blog to watch weekly live and you can catch up with the extra watches that review there so if you're not going to join us on youtube then you will hear us again in a wee second for all our goodbyes and if you are going to join us on youtube then we hope to see you there excellent well we will leave the show and leave you gentlemen and thank you for your time in a world of misguided uh, watch buying. I will ask one one question though, a simple yes, no, we'll go round. If, as is reported, Parmigiani is for sale, would you buy it? David, yes or no? The what? By what? Parmigiani <laughs> being reported as being up for sale. <laughs> or, or is oh, the, the brand. What? Is the what your answer? Yeah, that's a who? Do you want to no. eat Guido's boss? <laughs> do you want no. to be Guido's boss no Mario <laughs> buy, buy sell or hold well I actually heard that it doesn't come with the intellectual property for any of the movements which is right, okay. kind of the big deal Handy. so <laughs> like if you have like a whole bunch of money just buy the whole lot from what the Sandoz family is selling with Voshe now you got a package but like just Parmigiani I don't know but w- imagine the power you would have. You too could lose hundreds of millions of dollars <laughs> over just a few years period of time making beautiful objects. I mean, mm. who's in with me? <laughs> Pete, are you in? No, you not in. in. <laughs> no, not in. There's always a reason why someone's selling. The- Think of the treasures we could make. Alan, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're a retailer. Would you as a retailer like to buy a brand? I actually do, and I'm actually the hourglass tried that <laughs> on three on three projects. I'm not Michael Tay though, so he also wears suits and ties, by the way, but not on the weekend. Then he wears Bremonts. Um, <laughs> all kidding aside, what what Ariel said, if it's the full package with the six subsidiaries, so Calibers, Vaucher, Atacolpa, etc., then yes, just the brand depends on the price, right? I was listening to Bill Ackman on the uh, Lex Friedman podcast yesterday. Since he invested in Bremel, maybe they should call him. Yeah. Sylvan, do you fancy a reverse takeover, a small ba- brand, Berneron buys a big brand and probably makes it a small brand again? That, that, would, be, that would be good advertising. <laughs> if I could acquire Vaucher. <laughs> that would be... No, but I, I agree with Alan. I think from an industrial a strategic perspective, uh, Parmigiani has always been um, 
unique in that scene because it was integrated into the Fondation Sando, it's called. It's basically owned by a huge pharmaceutical uh, group, uh, Parmigiani, and they have uh, Vaucher, movement manufacturers, they can make cases, dyes, hands, the whole thing. So they pretty much uh, built over the years a small integrated... Uh, yes, yes, gold cases. Ah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, we have a solution for yeah. you, Savan. <laughs> uh, no, but no, but I think they were really unique for that, and I think it would be to, to me it would be a strategic mistake to buy Parmigiani alone because all of a sudden you have to rely on suppliers to acquire all your components. Uh, which you had first priority on until now, and then you're just going to become uh, yet another client. So, uh, Ripway, would you like to try your own supply and buy uh, Parmigiani and wear Parmigiani? Yeah, so if Vosche doesn't come with it, I'm still game to buy Parmigiani, but if I'm buying Parmigiani Fleurier, it is not to make watches. We are making cheese. I'm partnering with Jean-Claude Beaver. We are going cheese. We are going Parmigiani, Parmesan, and we are going to go all the way there. And if, you know, if Beaver touches it, we've got the blessing of the watch industry anyway. So let's <laughs> let's just go for it. I, I think it's got to be out of Italy if it's Parmesan. Just saying. Well, well, look, we can do the Panerai thing. It's Italian but Swiss, and we won't go into that too much. <laughs> well, then you'll call the cheese Parmigiani. It's like Parmesan exactly. but Swiss. <laughs> the Parmigiani uh, well, Luminor. There you go. Yeah, it's again. And then we can combine our love of cheese and luminant. <laughs> Luminous <laughs> cheese. It'll be great. <laughs> well, on that bombshell, we'll have a great week, everybody. We'll see you again soon. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye, Bye everyone. everyone. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>